Parashat Lech Lecha. Baruch Hashem. Go out for yourself. Right? That's what it means. Go out for, your, for yourself, for your own good. Has another interpretation of that phrase. Go out for your own good. Go out beyond. Baruch Hashem. Hashem was talking to Avram about about the fact of his, his, his heritage, coming heritage, and Abraham was saying, I don't, have a, I don't have an heir, I don't have anything, you haven't blessed me with anything, and Hashem had him to step outside his tent. We've got to go outside of our own understanding, we've got to get outside of our own uh, realm of, of understanding sometimes. And, you know, as a practical matter, a lot of times it's a, it's a real blessing to go pray outside, to get outside, to go out in the back porch or patio, stand out in the middle of the yard, walk, take a walk, right? To get out in the, in the, into nature. Why? Because nature is the most enduring. We learned this last week. Nature is the most enduring manifestation of Hashem. Because there is no such thing as nature. There's just Hashem. So when we're out in the air, we're out in Hashem. So we connect with it. But we go outside of our own tent. We go outside of our own understanding. Metaphorically, we can say we've got to go outside of our, of our own cultural paradigm. We've got to go outside. We've, let's pray. Hashem. <laughs> thank you, Father, for this precious opportunity to learn from your word, Adonai. May it be your will, Hashem, that we do in fact learn and put the learning into practice. Help us to be like you today, Hashem. Help us to cling to you and to be transformed by your precious truth. In Yeshua's name, amen. amen. How to pray, because I was getting wound up. <laughs> One of the most difficult things for us to do is to put aside that what we've learned when we come to a place of truth, because it's, it's hard for humans sometimes to reconcile that what we believe may be wrong. Now, Many of us, and if you're in this room today, you're, you've already, you've, it's like we used to say when I was a kid watching a G.I. Joe cartoon, knowing is half the battle. How many of y'all watched the, uh, the old, uh, old G.I. Joe cartoon? Come on. Knowing is half the battle. So they used to say this would be a little segment at the end of that cartoon, and they would teach you something, and then they would say, knowing is half the battle. I was a G.I. Joe fan, big time. And so, uh, <clears throat> um, big league, to quote the president. So you have to be, so knowing us after battle, so if you're here, you've already begun the process of, of learning and overturning what we've been taught. And so today, I want to focus in on the parasha lekha primarily about what, um, what, Yesh, what Hashem rather told Avraham about circumcision. It's not a very popular talk, topic about circumcision, but today we're going to talk about circumcision and everything about it, um, at least from a spiritual level. <clears throat> there are three things that every despot, every dictator, every anti-Mashiach, every heathen, every uh, Caesar, every Stalin, every Hitler, uh, every one, all these people, there's three things that they always, always, always try to eliminate from the face of the earth. 
So these are the three things. Are you ready? Torah study. Right? Torah study. Shabbat. And circumcision. Those three things, you can look through history. It doesn't take a rocket scientist. You can find every one of these despots. They're all trying to do various things, but they all have something in common. Whether it be Stalin, Hitler, uh, what's the guy's name in Asia? Matai, whatever his name was. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. All these guys, all of them, every single one of them wanted to get rid of Slika. Every one, every one of them want to get rid of Shabbat, Torah study, and circumcision. Every one of them. So, if you find, this is a wake-up call for us. If we find ourselves with a thought process of, we don't really want to study the Torah, and study the Torah, you have to understand something. The reason that these people don't want us to study the Torah, because Jews don't study the Torah for academics. The purpose of story is emulation. Or study is emulation. We study to be like. So the purpose of Torah study is not just so we can have some nice little interesting study, tell some stories, take them out of context. But the purpose is to study the Torah to be like Hashem because this is His revealed will to us. And isn't it sad that we live in a time when everybody is trying to find their divine will. What's God's divine will for me? And everybody just wrings their hands and just, I mean, it's just people are talking, they're laying on couches talking to psychiatrists about it. I just don't know what, they're talking to pastors, I don't know what God wants to do with me. And the, and, and the, the ministers, whether they're pastors or priests or whoever, don't know what to tell them. Well, just pray and ask God and he'll reveal it to you. How? That's not comforting. God, can you tell me what you want me to do? I'm listening. And then you go for years and years and like he doesn't speak to me. And then you get depressed. Oh, yeah. yep. All the while, God has written us a beautiful letter. Amen. It's in black and white, his revealed will for our life. And the beautiful thing is he's no respecter of persons. So the revealed will for, for Tom is the revealed will for John. The revealed will for Leah is the revealed will for Susan. It's all the same because God loves everybody the same. It's like my parents used to tell me. They used to say, you are special, son, like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's like the movie I was watching with, uh, my wife and I were watching with Hadassah, the movie, um, The Princess Diaries. And, the, you know, I'm not ashamed to admit that I watch these movies now. <laughs> And so, uh, I'm comfortable with who I am, right? So there's a little scene in the movie where, you know, it comes out that she's a princess and you hear all the other girls in the background, my dad says, I'm a princess. So, you know. So we have this understanding that if we are against these things, we have to understand what side we're standing on if that's our position. I don't know about you, but I am not comfortable believing theologically anything that Hitler believed. I'm not comfortable believing theologically anything that Antiochus Epiphanes believed. I am not comfortable believing anything theologically that Stalin believed. You, understand, you, you see where I'm going with this? That way, if they believe it, and that's the world's way, right? That's the world's way then we have, to, we have to know automatically that God's way is the opposite of the world way. 
So we have to understand if that's what they're against, then we have to understand we probably need to be for it. Right? And circumcision is one of those things. Circumcision, you know, the Apostle Paul wrote in one of his letters, he said, circumcision does not matter, uncircumcision does not matter, what matters is the commandment. Now, I, I don't mean to be funny, but the, we don't really know what he meant by that exactly. Because the problem with that statement is that it doesn't make any sense. Because the circumcision is a commandment. So to say that circumcision doesn't matter, uncircumcision doesn't matter, all that matters is following the commandments. Well, but circumcision is a commandment. You see what I mean? So this, this is why we have to look deeper into this uh, situation. So let's begin by reading the parasha, chapter 17. When Avram was 98 years old, this is first, first verse, 90, excuse me, 99, 99 years old. That's old. He was 99 years old, Adonai appeared to Avraham and said to him, I am El Shaddai. Which means that I don't need anything. I am completely and, and totally and utterly self-sufficient. He is the original prepper. <laughs> Hashem is totally off the grid. Nice. Because he made the grid. Nice. Right? Said, El Shaddai said, walk before me and be perfect. I will set my covenant between me and you, and I will increase you most exceedingly. How many of you want to be increased most exceedingly? Come on. Raise your hand. Go ahead. Raise your hand. You want to be increased most exceedingly? God has the answer. Follow his will. It's that simple. This is when, when, when parents are talking to their children, and they're saying, they, they, they tell their children, listen, this is what you need to do. And the child says, I don't know if I want to do that or not. And the, ch the parent has in the power of their hand the opportunity to bless or curse, right? And the child's like, I'm not sure if I want to follow you. Don't, you don't understand. Who holds the cards? So when Hashem tells us this is what you need to do be, to be blessed exceedingly, and we're like, I don't know if I want to do that or not. And God says, well, I mean, you have a choice. You can either be blessed exceedingly or not blessed exceedingly. It's not... This is not the American society where we bless you regardless. Right? Abraham threw himself upon his face and God spoke with him saying, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be a father of a multitude of nations. By the way, in the first uh, chapter of this parasha, we learned that it says that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I covered this in Drosh's previous to this one. That can be, in, can be read in Hebrew, okay, the sages bring this down, that through you the nations of the world shall be engrafted. That's what it's, okay, that's in the Midrash. That's in, la, you can probably go back to last year and watch the Drosh uh, from, and get that insight. So it goes on to say, and uh, your name shall no longer be called Avram, but your name shall be Avraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. My wife was studying the parasha this week, and she came away with the reality that it's the woman, it's the wife, that brings the blessing into the relationship. A man is blessed, and his house is blessed because of the merit of his wife. And so this is, who finds, was it? 
He who finds a wife finds a good thing. So this is why when men, you know, usually when we're single, we're broke. And then when we get married, our wealth increases. It has to. We got shoes to buy. We got jewelry to buy. We got dresses to buy. We got houses to buy. Tackles to buy. I mean, come on. And it's not just one. And all the women said, amen. So as a man, we're broke. We, we, you know, we live on cheese sandwiches. But my wife won't eat a cheese sandwich seven days a week. Or ramen noodles or whatever, whatever. You know, so we got, so Hashem brings the wife into our life and then our wealth begins to increase. With that said, the reason that Abraham got the hay is because Hashem took the yod from Sarah's name and divided it in two. The yod is worth ten. He made two hays and gave five to him and increased his value. Now instead of a father of a nation, he's the father of nations. All because of Sarah who became Sarah. So it says, I will make you most exceedingly fruitful and make nations of you and kings shall descend from you. I will ratify my covenant between me and you, between your offspring after you throughout your generations as an everlasting covenant. Say everlasting covenant. Ever. When does everlasting end? Ever. Never. That's okay. Just going to let you know that the word everlasting means forever. To be a God to you and to your offspring after you, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourns. The whole land of Canaan as an everlasting, say everlasting. Everlasting, everlasting possession and I shall be a God to them. God said to Abraham, and as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You should do what with it? Keep it. You shall keep my covenant. Father Abraham had many sons. Right? Now, we are all children of Abraham. That's what the Basar brings down. We are all children of Abraham. And as children of Abraham, we are supposed to act like our father. And our father was charged by God, not anybody else but God, to keep his covenant. And if therefore, if we are the children of the one who is charged to keep the covenant, then we, in order to be his children, have to also keep the covenant. If we do not keep the covenant, we cannot claim to be his children. It's very that, it's that simple. If our children live in our home but refuse to obey us or refuse to accept us as their parents, are they really our children? Yeah, it'll be a short protest. <laughs> I never sat down at my table and told my mom I didn't like what she fixed for dinner. Ever. Are you crazy? I was hungry. I sat down. I didn't, so I didn't even ask. I didn't even really care. What's... You know, my mom told me with dinner, I said, some Boca Toe, man, Boca Shem, like, whatever, not Boca Toe, but Boca Shem. Because my mother and my father both, we sat down, I don't want to eat that. Sleeka, I'm sorry. Stop it.
We're not going to let it do that. Baruch Hashem. It's a Sennheiser. It's German. That's the problem. All right, so I'm just kidding. It's just a joke. Just, just a little show humor. So it said, God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout your generations. Now, whenever the generations cease, we can cease the covenant. All right. That's your sign. Whenever people stop having babies, you will know that the covenant has ended at that moment. All right. All right. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male. Say every. Every, every male. Every male among you shall, shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin and that shall be the sign. What is it? A sign, a sign of the covenant between me and you. There's two Mashiachs and there's two signs. The one sign is the sign of, of uh, Shabbat and the other sign is a sign of circumcision. Okay? One is spiritual, one is physical. That's how God operates. Now, I'm going to share with you, let's read something here from a very familiar passage, but it's worth reading again for the book of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Matthew chapter 5. Because we're talking here about covenant, we're talking about Torah observance, and circumcision is a part of the Torah. It cannot be separated out. You can't cut it off. Uh, see what happened? Just making sure you're awake. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. This is what it says. Pay, pay close attention to what I'm about to read to you because the first few words are critical. Okay? Verse 17. Do not, say do not. Do not imagine. Do not, or some translations say don't think. Do not imagine that I have come to violate the Torah or the words of the prophets. So right off the bat, Messiah Yeshua is teaching us, don't even think it. Don't even imagine it. Don't even contemplate it. That way when you're studying other works and you're studying letters and that kind of stuff and you read something and you think, well maybe God did away with the Torah. Stop, because Messiah said don't even think that. It's a violation of his word to even consider it. You hear what I just said? It is a violation of the word of Mashiach to even contemplate that God has abolished the Torah. You are violating the word of the living Torah by even considering that as a possibility. So we've got to stop just reading through stuff. We've got to take word by word. Do not imagine that I've come to violate the Torah or the words of the prophets. I have come not to violate but to fulfill. For amen, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one yod nor one thorn. That's the jot, the tittle. Not one thorn will pass away from the Torah until all has been established. Therefore, the man who violates one of these small mitzvot and teaches sons of men to do likewise will be called small in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. How many of you want to be called great in the kingdom of heaven? Isn't our, our goal? Our goal is to be great, right? Now, I'm going to do something today which is I rarely do, if ever, 
I'm going to share with you a Christian resource. Mm -hmm. And you're going to find out why in just a second. So go ahead and put this picture up there. I was cleaning out my bookshelf a couple weeks ago and uh, came across a little book that I have had for years and I haven't looked at it, but I've got it all highlighted and marked up and everything. It's called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor. He was an, a vehement anti-Nazi. He was um, somebody who, much like Schindler, did what he could to rescue Jews out of Germany. He actually got out of Germany before the war and came to New York and then decided that it, that wasn't right, that if he was going to be there to help his German people uh, overcome Hitler and do better after Hitler was defeated, he needed to go back and, and endure the time with them. So he went back to Germany and he, was, he acted in part as a spy for the United States or for the Allies. He actually formed a church called um, the Confession Church. Uh, and the re I'll tell you why he did that in a second. But eventually he was, he was sent to a concentration camp by the Gestapo because he, w he was on the radio even when Hitler was, uh, before Hitler became the uh, Chancellor of Germany, before he became the Fuhrer, he was on the radio telling everybody not to fall, follow this idolatrous leader. Don't fall into the cult of, of Nazism. Only 20% of Germany's pastors sided with Bonhoeffer. The rest sided with Hitler. Only 20%. Um, so they eventually arrested Bonhoeffer, sent him to prison, and then later to a concentration camp. He was uh, tried uh, for being involved in the uh, assassination plot against Hitler and was, uh, was hanged to death at the concentration camp uh, two weeks before the U.S. infantry got there to uh, rescue that camp. Um, but what was going on as a result of Hitler? You understand what I'm saying about the circumcision? What was going on as a result was is that the German uh, Christians were getting together and they wanted to remove the quote-unquote Old Testament from the Bible. They wanted to take it out completely. Today they just don't study it, but back then they just wanted to take it all out. Bonhoeffer was against that and he... Um, he uh, formed a, a church association to try to prevent that from happening in Germany. He wrote the book, The Cost of Discipleship, which is what I'm going to be quoting from extensively today, because his first comments I'm going to be talking about relate directly to Matthew 5, 17-20. He actually is commenting on this passage I just read. But I don't ever use Christian sources, but this is an exception, and here's why. His comments to Matthew chapter 5, and I have them on the screen. I've put them on the screen as they're written in the book. Uh, just so you can see that this is exactly what he wrote. His comments in Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20 is thus. He writes, quote, It is not at all surprising that the disciples imagined that the law had been abrogated. They enjoyed perfect communion with Messiah, who had made all things new. They are the salt, the light, the city set on a hill. The old life is dead and done with. How tempting then to suppose that Yeshua would give the old order its coup de grace by repealing the law of the old covenant and pronounce his followers free to enjoy the liberty of the Son of God. 
After all, Yeshua had said, the disciples might well have thought like Marcion, I have not come to fulfill, but to destroy. Many others since Marcion have read and expounded this saying of Yeshua as, it, as if that were what he said. But Yeshua says, you must not imagine that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. And so saying, he vindicates the authority of the law of the old covenant. Now he writes with relation to discipleship, he says this. Discipleship means adherence to Messiah Yeshua alone and immediately. Now, hold on. Listen to what he said. It's alone and immediately. Today, if you hear his voice. We're not permitted the opportunity to hear the call and then say, hey, let, me on let me think about it. I'm kind of enjoying my pagan lifestyle here. Besides, the season's coming up, and that's my f I have fond memories. So it says, discipleship means adherence to Yeshua HaMashiach alone and immediately, but now comes the surprise. The disciples are bound to the Old Testament law. This has double significance. First, it means that adherence to the law is something quite different from following Messiah. And secondly, it means that any adherence to his person that disregards the law is equally removed from following him. It is, now this is a Christian pastor. And he's in Germany at the height of our generations, so to speak, our generation, our centuries, the peak of anti-Semitism. He is there confronting this, and he's coming away with a new illumination, and that is that we've got it all wrong. It is, however, Yeshua himself who points to the law, those whom he has granted his whole promise and his whole fellowship. To... Who is he pointing the law to? He's pointing the law to the people that he's granted the promise to. That's what the pastor is saying. You, you coming under the promise? Coming under the wings? Great. There is the law. Go do it. Okay? And this is what he says. Because it is their Lord who does this, they are bound to acknowledge the law. The question inevitably arises, which is our final authority? Messiah or the law? To which are we bound? Messiah has said that no law was to be allowed to come between him and his disciples. Now he tells us that to abandon law would be to separate ourselves from him. What exactly does he mean? And this is his answer. The law Yeshua refers to is the law of the old covenant, not a new law. But the same law which he quoted to the rich young man and the lawyer when they wanted to know the revealed will of God. It becomes a new law only because it is Messiah who binds his followers to it. For Christians, therefore, the law is not a, quote, better law than that of the Pharisees, but one and the same, every letter of it, every jot and tittle, must remain in force and be observed until the end of the world. Wow. 
Yeshua vindicates the divine authority of the law. God is its giver and its Lord, and only in personal communion with God is the law fulfilled. Therefore, no, there, excuse me, there is no fulfillment of the law apart from communion with God. And, listen to this, no communion with God apart from fulfilling the law. Fulfillment of the law. Do you understand that Pastor Bonhoeffer just said that if you're not keeping the Torah, you don't have any real communion with God? Why? Because this is his revealed will. And circumcision is a part of that. This is what he's talking about when he's talking to, to Abraham. You're going to keep my covenant forever. Why? Because you're going to have fellowship with me. You're going to have communion with me. Now, I want to continue reading because there's some other really awesome things that Pastor Bonhoeffer is saying here that we all need to hear. The relationship between law and Messiah. He's commenting on this, and he says, It is Yeshua himself who comes between the disciples and the law. Thus, by pointing his disciples to the law, which he alone fulfills, he forges a further bond between himself and them. He must needs reject the notion that men can cleave to him and be free from the law. For that spells enthusiasm, and so far from leading to adherence to Yeshua means libertarianism. Did you hear what he just said? He's got to dispel the notion that you can somehow cling to Messiah and yet not keep the law. He, the, the pastor is saying that is a false gospel is what he's saying. And it leads to nothing more than enthusiasm and libertarianism which is just a hair shy of anarchy. But this allays listen to this. Please listen to this. I have an embold here. Wasn't able to get embold on the screen but listen to this. This, but this allays the disciples' anxiety that adherence to the law would sever them from Yeshua. Isn't that people's anxiety today? If you start keeping kosher somehow, you'll lose your faith in Messiah. Right? Somehow that's, somehow that's not, if you start keeping the festivals, if you keep Hanukkah instead of Xmas, somehow you will no longer believe in the Yeshua. Even though he kept Hanukkah and didn't even know what Xmas was, except, aside from the fact that at the time it was a Roman holiday, aside from that, if you do what he did, you'll somehow not live as he lived and not believe in him anymore. In, order, in fact, the, in, in a lot of people's mind, the way to follow Yeshua is to live exactly the opposite of the way he lived. What, what was he having for dinner? I want the exact opposite. Because that's how I follow him. He goes on to say, instead the disciple now learned that genuine adherence to Messiah, genuine adherence to Messiah also, mean, also means adherence to the law of God. Wow. But it, 
is Yeshua come between the disciples and law, he does not he does so not to release them from the duties it imposes, but to validate his demand that they should fulfill it. Just because they are bound to him, they must obey the law as he does. The fact that Yeshua has fulfilled the law down to the very last letter does not release them from the same obedience. Only the doer of the law can remain in communion with Yeshua. Let me read that again. Only the doer of the law can remain in communion with Yeshua. No one who failed to do the law could be accounted righteous. Now, I want to point something out. Bonhoeffer is not right. This is not a book to Jewish people. This is not a book to Jewish believers. This is not a book, and he did not, he did not start the book by saying, he did not, when you turn, <laughs> when, you, when you open up the book, you don't read, now if you're a Messianic Gentile, please put this down. So just know that, okay? This is Bonhoeffer who has a revelation. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ex explain something to you. I'm just going to throw this out there. This is, this is my opinion. But somebody who is sitting in a concentration camp has more moral authority, the right, than I do or somebody else does living in America writing about this cute little theology we think we believe in. Somebody who's enduring concentration camp treatment and studying the Word of God and writing about it has more moral authority to write on this topic than we do in our cute little environment going out and sipping our little Starbucks. I want a, couple, a few more quotes from Bonhoeffer. Grace equals legalism. This is what he wrote. This is a quote. We must not do violence to the scriptures by interpreting them in terms of an abstract principle. Even if that principle be a doctrine of grace, otherwise we shall end up in legalism. Analyze your grace theology and you will find that you are a, a religious legalist. How do you know that? Because when somebody comes along and says, I'm eating kosher because I believe God told me to, you will chastise them and rebuke them. Why? Because you are in a spirit of religion. And you're so legalistic that you can't allow somebody to follow the word of God because you're of your legalism. Which is based on your own interpretation of your own selfish desire. And I say you, meaning not you, but just you. Okay? Deed not creed. This is what he writes about that. The response of the disciple is an act of obedience, not a confession of faith in Messiah. He says, only the obedient believer, if we are to believe, we must obey a concrete command. Without this preliminary step of obedience, our faith will only be a pious humbug and lead us to the grace which is not costly. He also writes, if you dismiss the word of God's command, you will not receive his word of grace. 
Grace comes by doing the law, not by not doing it. He only will carry the ark for you if you're carrying the ark. He says, unbelief thrives on cheap grace, for it is determined to persist in disobedience. I got one more quote. Yeah. Now this is Bonhoeffer commenting on Matthew 19, 16 through 22, which is the rich young ruler story. He wrote a whole lot about that, but for the sake of time, I, I only took a, a short quote. It says this, the only answer to his difficulty, meaning the rich young ruler, the only, I want you to hear what he's saying here. Please, please, if you're trying to check Facebook, stop. The only answer to his difficulty is the very commandment of God, which challenges him to have done with academic discussion and to get on with the task of obedience. The one thing that matters is practical obedience. That, say, say that. That, what's, what's that? The practical obedience. That will solve his difficulties and make him and all of us free to become the child of God. Did you hear what he just said? Now, all of this is in his book. I didn't add to it or take away from it. It says... That will solve his difficulties and make him and all of us free to become the child of God. How, are we have, how do we have liberty to become the child of God? By obeying his commandments. Do you understand what he just wrote? He wrote what the word of God says, which is there's freedom in observance. Freedom in observance. He goes on to say, such is God's diagnosis of man's moral difficulty. God is the physician, and he says, the way that you're going to heal yourself is by obeying my word. That is, my, that is God's prescription for us. We may not understand circumcision. We may not understand hatafat dambrit if you're already medically circumcised. We may not understand this, but God says, it's my remedy for you. It's my remedy for you. This is, this is, what, it, this is what it entails. Now, I just want to read a few things from the Midrash Rabbah. Man, I don't know about you, but that's... Uh, come on. You know, you can, some, people, some people can dismiss Jewish stuff. Well, that's just the rabbis. They don't believe in the Messiah. I'm reading to you from a Christian pastor who just blew up 90% of people's theology. Blew it up. So... Midrash Rabbah Breshit 46.1, commenting on when Abram was 99 years old, Adonai appeared to Abraham and said, I am El Shaddai, walk before me. Now, they're commenting on the fact, what does it mean to walk before me? It says, the scripture says, I found Israel like grapes in a desert, like ripe fruit on a fig tree in its beginning. Did I view your fathers? Hosea 9.10. Rabbi Yudon said in explanation of this, he said, the first 
the, the fig tree at first they harvested one fruit at a time and subsequently then two at a time and then three at a time until eventually they have to use uh, equipment to get all the uh, figs off of it. So too, at first Abraham was but one, then he inherited land, and then there was two, Abraham and Isaac, and then there was three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and after that there were the children of Israel. They were like fruit teeming and increasing and being strong and very, very much so according to Exodus 1.7. So Rabbi Yudan said, further, just as the fig has no refuse that must be discarded as inedible other than its stem, remove it and the fig's only blemish is eliminated. So too, the Holy One blessed be he, said Abraham, there is no refuse in you other than the foreskin. Remove it and the blemish is eliminated. Thus it says, walk before me and be perfect. In the notes it says, it seems quite clear from our Midrash that the foreskin can be viewed as a physical blemish of the body compared to the useless, inedible stem of a fig tree. This is why Adam made himself a garment of fig because when he sinned, he was trying to return to himself the foreskin. Which is the worthless fig. Which is why when Hashem showed up, he said, no, not figs. I'm going to make you garments of light. Again, a lesser light, but still light. It says here, why did Abraham wait for circumcision? Midrash Shabbat 46.2. This is an important point, right? It says, in fact, in the Kehot Humash, which is spelled, because people asked this last week, K-E-H-O-T, Kehot Humash. It says in the Kehot Humash, when it's talking about Hashem, or excuse me, talking about Abraham following the Torah, and all this has relevance. I wish I had enough time to fully develop all of this, but people will inevitably ask me about Acts 15 and all this other kind of stuff, but you have to understand, we're following the pattern of Abraham. This is what this says. This is in Breshi. This is in Genesis 11. Okay, and this is the, uh, the Midrash around Genesis 11 talking about Abraham coming out and, uh, from Haran. By this time... Abram had learned of God's original instructions to humanity that had been preserved by Shem and Aver. So what it's telling us is that Abraham followed the Torah. The Torah was not given at Mount Sinai for the first time. The Torah has always been, which is why it will always be. Okay? So it says, he had begun to observe these teachings which God would later give to the descendants of the Torah, the, to, to, excuse me, to his descendants as the Torah. Nonetheless, he did not circumcise himself because this would have violated God's explicit commandment not to shed human blood. His voluntary assumption of the Torah's commandments did not have the legal power to override an explicit directive. What is this teaching us? It's teaching us that he had the Torah, he knew about circumcision, but he did not perform circumcision on himself because he was concerned about the commandment about not shedding blood. Okay, stick with me here. So it says, in, in, uh, also in the Kale Tumash, in uh, this Torah portion here, chapter 17. What was another reason that Abraham was concerned? Abram expressed concern 
that differentiating himself this way from other people would discourage them from joining his religious movement. Now I want you to listen to that and think about Acts 15. Why are we making it hard for these Gentiles to come in? They're learning about the Torah. They're starting to walk the Torah. And now we're requiring circumcision of them right off the bat. In fact, we're saying, you've got to be circumcised before you can even believe. And they're saying, we're, we're not going to do that because that's not the pattern of Abraham. Does it mean that they're never supposed to get circumcised? No, because that would be a violation of the Torah. But what we're saying is, let's go ahead and let them come in. Let's go ahead and let them get acclimated. They're learning about Moshe every week in the synagogue as it is. And besides, Abraham expressed concern because he was afraid that it would mess up his outreach. <laughs> By the way, that comes from Midrash, which we're going to hear in a second. God incidentally told him, don't worry about it. I'm God. I'll take care of it. Right. So it says in the Midrash... About this, it says that uh, Abraham should have been circumcised when he was 48 years old, when he first became cognizant of his creator. He's 99 now. He's been a believer for a lot of years. Over 50 years he's been a believer. He should have become circumcised the minute he believed. 48 years old should have been circumcised, right? But now, from 48 to 99, he is not, he's just now getting circumcised. The, it goes on to say, rather, he was not commanded to do so at that time, so as not to lock the door in front of potential converts. And if you will ask, but he should have been circumcised at the age of 85, at that time, God spoke to him at the covenant between the parts. Rather, God delayed giving Abraham the commandment of circumcision until after the birth of Ishmael, so that Isaac alone would be conceived from a drop that is in a holy state. Okay, what does this teach us? It teaches us that, first of all, Abraham was concerned about attracting converts. So, and Hashem was concerned about it too. So he said, first of all, let's get him acclimated to my will and then we'll do this operation thing, which is kind of a big thing. It really is. Okay? Especially if you're an adult. A child, it's like whatever. But if you're an adult, it's a big thing. So he says also that he wants Isaac to be conceived from a state of holiness. Who is Isaac. Isaac is the first ram offered. He's the first Akida. What does this teach us? It teaches that Messiah also must be conceived in a state of holiness. If Isaac must be conceived in a state of holiness, how much more so does Messiah have to be conceived in a state of holiness? So it's an important lesson. By the way, it says in Midrash Midrash. Sheet 46.5 that Abraham was a Kohen Gadol. We're going to skip that. I don't have time to get into that. Abraham was a Kohen Gadol. And the reason he was a Kohen Gadol is because he received the Kohen Gadolship from Melchizedek, which is a precedent that someone can transfer the priesthood, which is why Messiah went to Yochanan the Immerser. 
Okay? Transferred it to him. Which, why did Abraham need to be a Kohen Gadol? Because he was offering Isaac on the mountain. The reason the Mashiach needed to be a Kohen Gadol? Because he was offering himself on the mountain. And only a Kohen can offer the atonement sacrifice. Only a Kohen can offer the atonement sacrifice. Anybody, anybody can offer up the Pesach lamb, but only a Kohen can offer up the atonement. I don't even know where I am. Here we go. By the way, is this it? No, it's not it. Oh, yeah. I, I'm going to throw out a theory. Because somebody asked me a good question one time. And I, oh, that was a good question. So let me go out and think about it. According to Jewish sources, several people, several Zodiacs, including Adam and Noah and Moshe and Job. I'm not sure who else. Jo Joseph. They were born circumcised. Therefore, born without a blemish. So it becomes a question, why wasn't Messiah born circumcised? If the foreskin is a blemish, which it is, how and why was he not born circumcised? And I, I said, I don't have an answer for that. That's a good question. It's a good question. So there's two possible answers to that. Because there's only one recording in the Besor of him being circumcised. It says, and it's very short. In fact, it says in Luke 2.21, When eight days had passed for his bris milah, he was named Yeshua, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. That's what it says. Now we can read that and say that he was, he was circumcised, like normally. Which, the answer for that, if that's the case, could be that... The scripture says, in your blood shall you live, in your blood shall you live, which means when the baby is put on the table, so to speak, or in the lap of the sandik, to be, uh, have his circumcision, that the reason that Eliyahu, we just studied this the other night, that when Eliyahu shows up, the reason Eliyahu shows up is because he's there for the sacrifice. So the child is like a sacrifice. In your blood live, in your blood live. So the first shedding of blood that Yeshua did was like the, the blood of the Pesach lamb, which is why Yochanan said, behold the lamb of God. He was already the Lamb of God. He had already been like a sacrifice at his bris malah. Behold the Lamb of God, that in your blood live. The second shedding of blood was the shedding of the blood of the atonement goat, which is in your blood the second time. You see what I'm saying? So it's two offerings, right? Which fulfills the two offerings of the Pesach lamb and the atonement goat, right? Which is why, if you think about it, when he was offered up as the Lamb of God, when the little baby is there getting its bris milah, it is said to be an offering. Okay? So Mashiach is now an offering, shedding of blood. But, so that's like the Lamb of God, which anybody can do. But only a Kohen can lift up the, the atonement. So when he goes to be offered on the crucifixion stake, Pontius Pilate says, this man is not... Sinned and I wash my hands of it. I won't condemn him. I wash my hands of it. And the people said, let, let, his, let this sin be upon us. In other words, like the atonement goat, they put their sin upon him. And as the calling adult, he offered up himself. The first offering was done by anybody. The second offering, the second blood live was offered by himself. Because he had to go into the Holy of Holies. That's number one theory. Number two theory is that he was born circumcised and this was a bris milah which is required according to Halakha and right here it says even if someone is born circumcised they still require circumcision. 
which is the drawing of blood. We, today we say hatafat dam brit, but in the Midrash it just says circumcision is circumcision. If he's born circumcised, you've got to circumcise him anyway. So when it says he goes in for his bris merlah, maybe he was already circumcised and they're just doing the prick. And it's still in your blood lift. So either way, what I said a second ago still applies. Sarah's name, we covered that. Sarah was, not only was she blessed with, some people said, might have said it, Sarah, that, that her, I don't know how they would have said it, but they might have said that Midrash brings down, they might have said that her, her um, uh, birth, her, her pregnancy was not a supernatural. So what God did to make it abundantly clear that she was blessed is that he gave Sarah an abundance of milk. So that not only did she nurse her baby, but she nursed every other baby in the area. And it says that every baby that was nursed by Sarah, who, who took the sap of the root, that those babies gave birth to other babies who gave birth to other babies who would eventually become converts. Because you can't drink the milk and not come into the covenant. But I want, to get, I want to get to one other thing before I close here. How are we doing? Okay, great. An hour left. All right, so Midrash Rabbah 4710. I want you to listen to this because something that we miss in this is that God told Abraham to circumcise himself and circumcise Ishmael and circumcise every male in his household. It wasn't just Abraham and Isaac. It was every male. And who were these males? These were males, some were servants, some were slaves, some were ranch hands, but they, every single one of them, we learned in last week's Torah portion, every single one of them were disciples of Abraham. Every single one of them were converts that he had brought into the covenant. And Hashem says, I want you to take all the men. Hashem knows who these people are. These are all people that have believed in me that you have preached to. And I want you to circumcise all of them. Why? Because they're all converts. But this is just a really beautiful picture here. I want you to... Midrash Rabbah 47.10 It was taught in Abrasia. We may go to a commercial fair of idol worshippers to purchase from them houses, fields, vineyards, slaves, and maidservants. Now, because normally you can't go to an idolatrous fair. Uh, by fair, it means festival. But you can go there if you're buying these things. Listen to this. Rabbi Ami, in the name of Reish Lakish, said, It is not only circumcised slaves who may be purchased at these fairs. Rather, one may purchase even uncircumcised slaves because he thereby brings them under the wings of the Shekinah. But I want you to listen to the heart of God. How many of you here, don't raise your hand, but how many of you here, just ask yourself, was I bought with a price? Doesn't it teach us, doesn't the word of God teach us that we were all slaves to sin? So it's saying us to the halakha, you can go to the idolatrous festival and you can buy a manservant or a maidservant who is a slave to sin, a.k.a. idolatry, and you can buy them for a price. And the reason you can is because you're bringing them into the covenant of God. 
Isn't this what Mashiach has done for us? He's gone out and he bought us with a price. Where were we? We were shackled to idolatry and he brought us in. And this is what it says. Rabbi, I want you to hear the heart of, heart of God. This is the final thing. Rabbi Yehoshua, Rabbi saying that, listen, it is so precious to God to buy the slave bound to sin for a price that you can even go out on the Shabbat and make that purchase. Because it's so important to God to bring them into the Shekinah, to bring them into the, the, under the wings of God's presence, that you can buy the slave on Shabbat in order to get them circumcised and brought into the covenant. That's the heart of God. It takes precedence over the Shabbat. This is, why, this is why it's so important that we follow the word of God. Hashem, thank you for your commandments. Thank you for your heart. Thank you for your love. May your name be praised and glorified forever and ever until all eternity through us by the way that we act. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen.